0: This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on Saturday the 1st of May 2021 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next 30 minutes or so, Vincent McAveney is here to look through the main stories of the day. Then...
1: In two weeks' time, restaurants and bars will reopen for indoor dining in England. But when the sun shines, London already feels buoyant, with alfresco spots outside cafes nabbed in seconds. And parks packed.
0: Andrew Tuck gives us his view of the world opening up. We'll be exploring the short list of the Women's Prize for Fiction and also what we learned from Joe Biden's first 100 days as the President of the United States.
2: We have learned that Biden does not appear to believe at a term of his employment that every citizen of his country and indeed of the world should be thinking about him at every damn minute of every damn day. All of that coming up on Monocle on Saturday. First though, here are the headlines.
0: In Myanmar, protesters against military rule marched today, three months after a coup ended a democratic transition with several small blasts compounding a sense of crisis that a UN envoy warned could bring state administration to a halt. Australian residents and citizens returning from India will be banned from entering the country as of Monday and those who disobey will face fines and jail, government officials said. The temporary emergency legislation is the first time Australia has made it a criminal offence for its citizens to return home. Congolese President Felix Tshisekedi has declared a state of siege over the worsening violence in the eastern provinces of Ituri and North Kivu that's killed hundreds this year and displaced more than one and a half million people. A surge in attacks by armed militias in eastern DRC has killed over 300 people since the start of the year as government troops and UN peacekeepers struggle to stabilise the mineral-rich territory. And in our Monocle Minute weekend edition, we have health food thieves, hot tub parties and the pursuit of undergarment nirvana, as well as some deeply Dutch cultural highlights from the musician Benny Sings. Get your own copy at monocle.com forward slash minute. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, it's time now to have a browse through this morning's newspapers. And I am more than excited (laughs) because Vincent McAvini is here, actually in the studio. Welcome. In person
3: for the first time in over a year, yeah.
0: (laughs) Isn't it fabulous?
3: It's great. It's so much better than Skype.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So Vinny, who, of course, you will know as a Monocle24 regular uh, politics commentator, he's a reporter for a number of outlets uh, and very much uh, across everything that's happening uh, in this country – and beyond. Uh, Vinny, I'm so excited that you're here. I am going to ask you to stay with me for the entire (laughs) programme. Yeah, happy
3: to. Yeah, it's just nice to be in the studio again.
0: Um, Let's talk about this big story in Britain. I mean, this is all about the Prime Minister and his flat refurbishments. Give us the background.
3: Well, and I've got to say, not just in Britain, I was on Downing Street on Thursday reporting on this and there was a Spanish crew next to me And my Spanish is not great, GCSE Spanish. But I was like, he's talking about flats and furniture and stuff. And I asked him off air, like, are you doing this as a live in your evening news? And he was like, oh, yes, everyone in Spain is fascinated by it. Which is, I think it shows that, you know, everyone can get into a story where it just seems like an extravagance, a kind of, you know... Carrie Antoinette, we've both said is our (laughs) favourite word this week, after a play on Carrie Simmons, the Prime Minister's fiance, And yeah, so essentially, uh, Downing Street has two flats. So the number 11 flat and the number 10 flat. The number 11 flat is a four-bedroom flat where Prime Ministers, since uh, Tony Blair, have tended to live because it's bigger, and they normally have families these days as well. Um, And each Prime Minister is given a certain allowance, it's about £30,000 a year, for the upkeep and maintenance of that flat. Uh, David Cameron, when he got in about 10 years ago, did some quite big strategic structural work to the flats and and opened up the kitchen all kinds of things Theresa May spent a little bit of money on it but Boris Johnson and Carrie Simmons when they landed there Uh, and Boris Johnson had won the uh, general election in 2019, Kerry Simmons decided it was, in her words, a John Lewis nightmare left over from Theresa May. And so she has gone gangbusters on this flat. Uh, Kerry blew the budget. It's reported she spent up to around £200,000 employing a designer, Lulu Lytle. Uh, Now, just imagine a mood board of everything from Laura Ashley in the early 1980s, and you throw it all in that flat, and it is pretty i mean it's an acquired taste but i don't quite get matching the curtains with the wallpaper with the couch so that everything just <laughs> is camouflage i don't i don't get it and um
0: i think we should just explain uh, for for our non british listeners yeah. what john lewis is because that that phrase has upset so, so many people
3: so many people so i've got to say um yeah john lewis is a department store in the uk there were there were three main department stores in the uk Debenhams, which died in the pandemic, House of Fraser, which is on the verge of going under as well, and John Lewis. But John Lewis holds a special place in British people's hearts because it is a unique business model. All of the people that work in the stores are actually partners and they part-own the business. It doesn't have shareholders. There's no investment capital from outside. It is a partnership and they have a policy called Never Knowingly Undersold. I don't mean to do an advert for John Lewis, but <laughs> to explain why it's so special in British life is that if you find a price of something cheaper elsewhere, they will match it for you. So they've built a, a reputation as being a fair and and good employer but also a place that British people go and they very cleverly for the past 15 years had marketing campaigns which have some of the most emotive you know everyone waits every year for the John Lewis Christmas ad which is basically a formula now of um, an acoustic version of a hit 1980s song that you never really listen to the words of but is suddenly touching and you've (laughs) either got a snowman trying to build a a house for its snow friend or a penguin trying. I mean google them and you know prepare for the tears Um, so John Lewis, but it is uh, it is positioned as a, a kind of you know upper middle class thing. This is where you know you go and do your wedding list from. It's it's you know they're, they're nice stores. They're not you know they're not Harrods or anything like that. They're not flashy, but they are upmarket. And what most conservative voters would continue would say is you know if you imagine a conservative voter, you'd probably say John Lewis shopper. Um, and so, for Carrie Simmons to allegedly have said John Lewis nightmare, it is pretty, you know, much putting your foot in it with the base of this party. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, that is the that is the deep background of this. Um, you know, Boris Johnson, not known for his aesthetics, not known for his design and real care for attention to detail, um, and someone who also took a giant pay cut when he became prime minister. We think he lost about two thirds of his income because he couldn't write newspaper columns anymore. He's also supporting. We think four of his six known kids, possibly more out there. Who knows? He doesn't. Um, And, um, you know, so he's having to support a lot of people. He had an expensive divorce, and so he got into a pickle where Carrie allegedly blew all this money beyond what their budget was, and then they had to try and figure out who should pay for it. He was told perhaps get a loan, but they were trying to set up some kind of trust to maintain the whole of Downing Street, but then they were told it would be uh, too much of a a benefit uh, under the law for the flat to be done as well, so that went out the window. But someone initially, and we don't know who, this is the key point paid the cost of the renovation. And the question is all about integrity and standards in public life. Did whoever pay for that initially, and it wasn't declared who, think that by refurbishing the flat, which is actually above number 11 Downing Street, think that those in number 10 would give them special access or any kind of reward. And so there is a serious point about corruption whilst it is fun and we can talk about this and you know keir starmer went into a john lewis and had himself photographed browsing the wallpaper there is a serious point about this because the prime minister you know it's incredulous to believe he doesn't know who paid this he could clear it up today he's been given multiple opportunities all week to say who did it um but this has now gone into three separate investigations possibly into criminal activity
0: uh, and this could have dire consequences for the prime minister.
3: Yeah, it could do because so there are three investigations: one being led by Simon Case, who is the head of the uh, the, the civil service; uh, one by Lord Geith who is the advisor on ministerial interests. But you know, the prime minister kind of both really sits over both of them. The big one, which shook Conservatives this week, was the Electoral Commission. Now they are going to lead an inquiry into this. This has caused allegedly panic in Number Ten Downing Street and the Conservative Party headquarters. Because they have quite significant powers. They can commandeer uh, electronic communications, documents, they can interview people, and they can pass all this on to the police to investigate. There is allegedly a WhatsApp group that's been being used throughout this uh, about it. uh, And so there is that information that could be requested. uh, And so there will be a paper trail to this. But behind it all... That Svangali of the business section bookshop in an airport, uh, as uh, Marina <laughs> Hyde likes to say, is Dominic Cummings, who seems to have told the Prime Minister at the time, this isn't a good idea, this could come back and haunt you, but also just let him get on with it, perhaps to set a trap for perhaps that moment he left so he could have something over the Prime Minister in case he was shafted in his response to the pandemic. Dominic Cummings uh, is, you know, the one that's kind of, Behind the scenes, dropping, leaking, that we had the information last week about the Prime Minister saying allegedly that he would rather see the bodies piled high than going into a second lockdown. Persistent rumours that there is an audio recording of that as well that could come out at some point. And, you know, the idea that perhaps Dominic Cummings has been also leaking details of the whole flatgate scenario.
0: It's absolutely fascinating. And, I mean, we are gripped by it, as we say mm. here, here in, in the UK, but and beyond. And it's just going to run and run. Though. I mean, but the the thing about Boris Johnson is, of course, as is frequently remarked upon, he seems to be Teflon coated. None of this seems to touch him.
3: There is, there is that argument that with Boris Johnson, you know, a lot of this was factored in. You know, the lying, the philandering, all of it was was part of the deal, that people know what they got. And the, the thing with this story is it's not going away. And there was an argument, oh, it's not cutting through. But it does seem to be cutting through because, yes, whilst he hasn't misspent taxpayer money... It just adds to this air of sleaze, um, and we have—you know—there are other sides of this we haven't uh, haven't talked about because there is, you know. This idea that Boris Johnson has been trying to bypass the secure roots of everything. His mobile phone number is widely available. It's been on a press release for the last 15 years uh, and online. And so it's like who had access to it? Which foreign hostile powers could have gained access to it? You know, he had, He was told, you know, I have the number of, in my phone of Boris Johnson that he's had since he was the, the mayor of London. You know, he's had it for the last 15 years. It's still, you look on WhatsApp, you can still see him coming up as active. So he is still using that phone. Um and so the question is like, well, why did the security services not take that off him when he got in? One theory is he's got a lot of people to, you know, that he needs to manage on it um, and keep quiet, the likes of Jennifer R. Curie, perhaps. Uh but, you know, it 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 comes into this whole thing, that's what was the real fall of John Major's government in the nineteen nineties, was sleaze. And Labour, you know, that for the the Boris Johnson has constantly been calling Keir Starmer Captain Hindsight. Well this week they came back and called him Major Sleaze. Uh, And if Labour can make that stick, we will see. But there will be a test this week on all of this. There are local elections in the UK. We will see whether or not this is having any effect on Boris Johnson at the polls or whether he is Teflon. But, you know, the, the fact is, if the Electoral Commission decides to pass this to the police and they find criminal activity, then that could cause serious problems for the Prime Minister.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Listen, we're going to turn now to Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, and we'll return to the papers a little bit later. Now, Andrew brings us this special edition of what we learned in 100 days of Joe Biden as president.
2: We learned this week that the producers had had another one of their mercifully occasional ideas for a theme. (gasps) Thank you for your sympathy at this difficult time. But we learned, as we usually, if grudgingly, do at such moments, that the idea had some, we emphasise some, merit. That we reflect on what we have learned not from the last seven days, as is our usual remit, but on the last 100 More specifically, the last 100 days, which have been the first 100 days of the US presidency of Joe Biden. (laughs) Well, indeed, but that we have learned kind of is President Biden's pitch. You might even say that the tedium is the message. (laughs) Thanks, we're warming up to this. What we have mostly been learning is what it is like to have, once again, a relatively sane and functional human being who thinks prior to speaking and acting, occupying Earth's most powerful office, rather than a frantic, attention-seeking clown, burbling whatever mad nonsense has most recently popped into his derelict funfair of a brain.
4: Who, gra- who does cucumbers around here? Because I like cucumbers, Can you? I'm the only one. I like cucumbers.
2: 74 million votes for that there was. Anyway.
4: The vast majority of the 150 million Americans who voted, they want to get the vitriol out of our politics. We're certainly not going to agree on a lot of issues, but at least we can agree to be civil with one another. We have learned that President
2: Biden seems to have adopted a strategy of being, as far as possible, everything his predecessor was not and nothing his predecessor was. President Trump, you will recall, and not that he'd appreciate, the extremely learned reference impending, often appeared to have adopted one famous Shakespearean lament as a programme for government. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying... nothing. We have learned that Biden, by way of contrast, does not appear to believe it a term of his employment that every citizen of his country, and indeed of the world, should be thinking about him at every damn minute of every damn day. History, faith, and
4: reason, show the way, the way of unity. We can see each other, not as adversaries, but as neighbors. We can treat each other with dignity and respect. We can join forces, stop the shouting, and lower the temperature. For without unity, there is no peace, only bitterness and fury, no progress, only exhausting outrage, no nation, Only a state of chaos.
2: We've learned that by the standards of the first 100 days, at least since people started caring about a president's first 100 days circa the first term of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, Biden hasn't signed that many new laws. Just 11, as opposed to FDR's blizzard of 76. But Biden's 11 laws, though small in number, have been hefty in impact, most notably a $1.9 trillion post-pandemic rescue package. On his 99th day in office earlier this week, Biden proposed another $4 trillion investment in jobs, education and social care and reminded that his administration has already made one kind of history.
4: Anyway, thank you all, Madam Speaker, Madam Vice President. No president has ever said those words from this podium. No president has ever said those words. And it's about time. We've also
2: learned that Biden appreciates that government bipartisan consensus may not presently be possible. He has signed 42 executive orders, more in the first 100 days than any president since FDR, though 19 of those were concerned with revoking 62 of the executive orders issued by President Trump. Come on, keep up. And we've learned that President Biden is proving a difficult target for his foes in politics, and perhaps more pertinently in America's seething conservative media, to land a hit on. With the previous Democratic president, they found it easy, for some completely unimaginable reason which we cannot begin to guess at – no, search us, we've got nothing – to depict Barack Obama as some sinister revolutionary intent on turning the United States into an Islamic Socialist Republic. We've learned that with Biden, the same critics are reduced to inventing demented balderdash about the impending abolition of hamburgers. That means you're only allowed to eat four pounds of red meat a year. That adds up to a burger a month. That's it. And the state-funded issuing of Vice President Kamala Harris's children's book, Superheroes Are Everywhere, to newly arrived immigrants. Neither of which, to be clear, are things which are happening. But if we've learned one thing from President Joe Biden's first 100 days, it's that he appears to believe that the occupant of the Oval Office should be able to find better things to do with their time than conduct inane culture war bun fights. We've learned that he might even be serious about doing presidenting stuff it's going to be quite an adjustment, and an adjustment with which we have learned certain American politicians are struggling. A few weeks back, Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz took some time out from wondering who he hates most, his constituents or himself, to condemn President Biden as boring but radical. Honestly, if boring but radical isn't Biden's re-election slogan in 2024, someone is asleep at the switch. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller.
0: Listening to Monocle on Saturday, I'm Georgina Godwin and with me in the studio is Vincent McCaveney, in person, in the real and actual flesh, which I'm still very <laughs> excited about. Uh, but you were in the real and actual flesh in America during that election.
3: Yeah, I was. I was over there covering it uh, for ITN for two weeks and it was just an amazing moment of history to, to be for. It was... Very strange when we landed, because obviously, you know, the plane was barely, uh, was barely you know, barely, um, there were hardly any people on it. It was basically all journalists going to cover. And we landed, and then we got to Washington, D.C., and everything was being boarded up. That's all you heard for the first 24 hours, 48 hours, was just the sound of power drills, all this wood being put onto the shop fronts and things, because, you know, it was expected that there would be serious trouble. Um, you know, lo, lo and behold, that did happen on January the 6th. But then, you know, it was just, you know, you had the pandemic, the distancing, everything like that. And it just felt so eerie. And we went to uh, went to Biden's hometown at Scranton, went to Delaware, where he lived as well. And we're in Philadelphia when the result finally dropped. And it was extraordinary. But it felt like for I've never felt as palpable attention in a tension in a place in the days leading up to the election as I felt there. It just felt on both sides incredibly, incredibly tense.
0: Uh, and this huge sense of relief. Yeah, uh, afterwards,
3: Massively, yeah, in Philadelphia, which obviously supported Joe Biden. I mean, my experience of it was what I imagine it felt like, you know, on the day because people were, you know, just going up to each other and telling each other. People were leaning out of windows, banging pots and pans. People were just taking to the streets and dancing. There was this impromptu party. But there was what there was, you know, it was great relief. There was one moment which I was, I, I, sticks out to me was I was I was waiting to go out of the hotel to to go and do some filming, and a guest arrived and the and the people behind the counter were celebrating the news. Uh, it was two black women. And uh, the, the the guy came up and he was like, who called it? This guy that was checking in. Um, and it was sort of a white guy in his 50s. Uh, and they said, oh, CNN. And he says, oh, it doesn't matter until Fox does. <laughs> and I was just like, wow, that is just quite the mindset to be. And lo and behold, they did about, you know, 15 minutes later. But yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just, you know, you are, you are really living in a place dealing, talking to Talking to Republicans there was, you know, you really did feel like you were being gaslit by them, that they were very much radicalised into a different world. of Just just the facts, whatever you think of the policy positions, just the pure facts, was just very strange.
0: Yeah. Well, at least you've been out of the country. Hardly (laughs) anyone else has. And that's uh, actually the Guardian's talking about this today, aren't they? About how English travellers will get a week's notice of uh, overseas rule.
3: Yeah, that's right. From the 17th of May, it's the next phase of the UK's unlocking. We'll be allowed to leave the country for holidays because, of course, that is illegal at the moment. Now, imagine if we told each other in January 2020 then in a year's time it would be legal to go on holiday anywhere. <laughs> like, it is... We are, you know, it's we are the, the frog in the boiling pot with Absolutely. all of this, really, aren't we? But yeah, so from the 17th of May, allowed to go on holiday, but the government's only going to give people a week's notice, and this is causing real problems in the travel industry, which hasn't had as much support as other industries has been really battered. Um, I, was at a, I was in uh, Wales this week, and one of the case studies I was talking to about the economy and the recovery was, was a travel agent, and she says, you know, as a sector, they have been just not given any levels of support other sectors have had. They have had things like furlough, but not kind of targeted support like other industries. And the fact is that they're still just completely in the dark. She says, we book things, we cancel, we book, we cancel, we book, we cancel. We just don't know what is going to happen. And people are getting a bit frustrated with that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, if we can't travel, we can at least travel in our minds. <laughs> and the best way to do that is through fiction. So this week, the Women's Prize for Fiction, one of the biggest annual international celebration of women's creativity, has announced its twenty. 21 shortlist uh, it's in its 26th year the prize honors outstanding ambitious original fiction written in english by women from anywhere in the world well the judges this year the chair is bernardine everisto elizabeth day vic hope Nesrine malik and sarah jane me who's the sky news presenter and broadcaster and she joins me on the line now sarah jane thanks so much for for, for coming on um, and uh, what a great shortlist
5: Oh, my pleasure, Georgina. Yes, we are so, so proud of this shortlist. Um, It's quite interesting listening to you talking about travel there and saying how fiction helps you travel. I've travelled all over the place in the last year in this pandemic. Britain, Barbados, America, fantasy world. Um, As a team of judges, as a group led by Bernie, we have gone from 144 entries down to these sensational six, and we are so proud of these books. It's a real snapshot of the best of women's writing at the moment in in the world of fiction. Um, And what are the key criteria? What are the judges looking for? Um, We're looking for originality. uh, We're looking for excellence. And we're looking for good writing. Um, We came across um, many books that had great ideas, but the writing let it down. Then we had other books where the writing was wonderful, but there were holes in the plot. You're really looking for that special book that combines all of that. Um, We were also looking for something different as well. And I think in these six books that we've got, I mean, we've got everything from Piranesi, by Susanna Clarke, which takes you into a fantasy world, to Unsettled Ground by Claire Fuller, which is a beautiful book set in rural Britain. So we were looking to create a diverse list, a real... Wonderful library for people to dip into, and yeah, excellence as well. Like I said, all of these books very
0: different, but all beautifully written and well executed. Mm. Uh, now you've mentioned Susanna Clark, also Claire Fuller. Interestingly, she didn't start writing until she was forty, which I, I, I love that idea that 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 you can still be a you know prize winning novelist even if it, you haven't been doing it forever.
5: Yeah, and, and none of the shortlist shortlisted authors have been nominated. The Women's Fiction Prize, before because obviously there are some authors that, that crop up year after year because their work is so good. Um, and what I like about this is that they are all first time nominees. And as a judge, it, it's really interesting because you have to focus solely on the book. It doesn't matter if somebody like um, Ali Smith is again, she was on the long list, but it, it doesn't matter about her reputation. You have to read the book um, completely independent of the author. And personally, I didn't read anything about the authors before I picked up the books. Obviously, some I knew. Dawn French, for example, who was also on the long list. You know about Dawn French and you know about her successful writing career. Um, But it wasn't until after... I'd selected my choices to, to go into the committee room and sort of fight for those books that I actually read about the background of the authors and found out their ages, where they were from. Like you said, if they're, they're de- debutants um so you have to be quite careful as judges not to sort of be swayed by their background. But, yeah, I think we've given a, a real boost to so many different authors, some seasoned authors, some new authors. Uh, and
0: a range of ages and backgrounds and mm. ethnicities as well. I, I mean, I love uh, uh, Cherry Jones's background. She's a lawyer based in Barbados. Oh, I know. Um,
5: and her book, How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps the House, is just, whew, I mean, I literally read it in one sitting. It's a real firecracker of a book. And uh, gosh, by the time you finished it, its it's gone in the blink of an eye, but it tackles so many different... Issues in terms of, you know, um, the underbelly of Barbados. You know, um, what happens to the real people who live there, who you know the tourists see on the beach. It deals with um, domestic violence. It deals with grief. It's it packs so much in um, to 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 what is relatively a, a short book for the the topics it tackles, mm. and it's a real rollercoaster of a read. That's a really strong contender.
0: And Britt Bennett, The Vanishing Half.
5: Yes, I mean, we were all uh, pretty unanimous on this book in terms of it's perfectly executed. It's so beautifully written. Um, And what it deals with was an eye-opener for me because obviously we, we... read many books that deal with the issue of race and and this one was really interesting for me to read because it deals with a black woman who lives as a white woman which you know as a a white woman (laughs) I wasn't aware of that kind of experience and it's a really interesting exploration of something that's not widely talked about um and like i said brilliantly executed and another really strong
0: contender it's gonna be so so hard to pick a winner and <laughs> um, the, the only one i think we haven't mentioned so far is patricia lockwood um and uh i, I uh, know her for, as from her book priest daddy about her bizarre mm. upbringing uh and this is a book, a follow-up called no one's talking about this Yes, this was a really
5: interesting read. And I had to read this two or three times because it starts as one book and for me ends as another. There's a real gear change in the middle. Um, it's really interestingly written when you first start reading it. It's written in terms of, it's almost like you're in the author's head and she's having random thoughts, which I totally identify with. (laughs) And it's written in the sense of if you're reading Instagram posts or tweets. So it's such an interesting way of writing a book. And then it takes, like I said, a real... Handbrake turn and turns into this really poignant book um, that had me in tears. That book made me cry, as did Unsettled Ground by Claire Fuller. I'm not ashamed to say those two books brought me to tears. Well, you've got a very tough decision ahead of oh, you. <laughs> I know. We as judges, when we sat down and we went, "That's our six. We all looked at each other, and went, "How on earth are we going to pick a winner?" Because they're all so good. And like I said, I'm really proud of this list. And if you're looking for books to read this summer, if we're lucky enough to get away on a summer holiday, or even if you're relaxing on your balcony or garden or local park. These are wonderful books that will just spirit you away. We are so proud of this list.
0: And we will know the winner on the 7th of July. Sarah Jane Me, thank you so much for speaking to us. Georgina, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Your you're listening to monocle on Saturday I'm Georgina Godwin now still in the studio with me is Vincent Racavini and we have been looking through the papers not getting very far because we keep being distracted <laughs> and talking about other things um, but uh, let's 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 return to the papers and and, uh, and 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 have a look here this is um this is I suppose carrying on with the theme of entertainment from from books now to television now again this could be seen as quite a hyper local story it's about a British actor mm-hmm. uh, and he uh, has been, to use the parlance of the day, cancelled. Mm. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about this.
3: Yeah, well, this is an actor, producer, director called Noel Clarke. And yeah, he's done a, a, quite a varied lot of work. You know, he's he won a special BAFTA last month, which was for his contribution, because he is a bit of a powerhouse. He's made lots of movies that have been cult hits like Kiddlehood. He's been on big shows like Doctor Who. Uh, and some allegations have come out. It was The Guardian that investigated all of this by 20 women going, back over the course of the last 15 years of bullying, uh, harassment, uh, sexual harassment and groping. Uh, and this uh, was in the week in which he was starring in a five-part primetime ITV show called Viewpoint, uh, which was uh, meant to air last night its fifth and final episode. And ITV remarkably pulled the whole thing. It had been doing, you know, great viewing figures for them all week, but they pulled the last episode. And there's a lot to go into about, you know... How could this have gone on for so long if these allegations are true? Uh, why did BAFTA allegedly, when they were told before giving him this award, not cancel giving him this award? He's had his BAFTA membership provoked. But there's also an interesting story about what to do when... You know, when something like this happens, what do you do with the work? Because some people were saying yesterday, well, this is quite unfair on, you know, the writer of the programme. This You know, they'll have worked on this for years and suddenly the final one is cancelled. The other actors in the programme, you know, it's cancelled. And strangely, ITV have pulled it from the terrestrial broadcast but they've put it on their own um, ITV Hub player so you can go online and watch it. And it's what do you do when something like this happens?
0: Mm, absolutely. And I mean, it, the, the, there's been a whole thing with West Side Story too.
3: Yeah, that's right. Last week uh, during the Oscars, one of the films that was trailered was um, Steven Spielberg's upcoming remake of West Side Story. This is a huge multi-million dollar production. You know, it's expected to, to need to haul back a lot of money. But during the course uh, of the period between when it was made probably 18 months, two years ago uh, to now, the male lead, uh, Anselm uh, Elgort, uh, has had uh, accusations made around, uh, of sexual assault uh, against him uh, and bad behaviour against him as well. Uh, so these are still allegations. But it's, you know, he is very prominent in the trailer and it caused the backlash last week of people saying, you know, this this is coming out with someone who whose conduct and, and behaviour is, you know, under question. Mm. And for studios, you know, there is a, you know, there is a financial thing here, they have to get this movie out, it was made you know, they, they probably say they did the due diligence on the people involved and they need to make a return but will there be a campaign properly against people not turning out to see this movie now you know, the impact that it has on on the rest of the cast, who this is no fault of, of their own, they didn't decide who was cast as the male lead um, and it does create difficult questions about what we do with the work of people, there was uh, um famous author you'll know was it Philip Roth, Philip Roth this week, so the, this This is so
0: interesting. So, Roth's biography, I mean, Roth himself obviously has been accused and and was quite frank about a lot of the way that he behaved, which would now be uh, deemed uh, unsuitable. Um, But Blake Bailey is his biographer uh, and he's been accused of sex uh, assaults. And so his publishers have. Pulped it. Pulped it completely. The book was already out, was already doing astoundingly well. Mm. Um, And it's pulped now. And and just, I mean, if you're lucky enough to have one, stick it on eBay.
3: <laughs> but then, have they have they pulled the ebook as well? What does it, you know? There's this whole, you know, just yeah. to compare to the ITV thing, where it's like, oh, we've stopped the broadcast, but it's on online yeah. ITV. You know, I'm sure there's a PDF online that you can download of it. I'm, it's very I'm quite yeah. sure.
0: And it also, I mean, begs the question. I mean, so so do we? Do, must we also stop reading Roth? Uh, and then you go sort of you, you can go back in time as, as as long as you like. Should we not read Nabokov? Mm. You know, <laughs> um, Picasso. Should we not appreciate his artworks for you know his, his alleged behavior? Yeah. It's it's quite extraordinary. And it's a uh, I think we are we at this age is redefining what we can and can't deem as approachable or accessible or indeed allowed culture. Mm. It's a it's a very strange era we're living through, Vincent. Mm. Uh, let's turn now to our, our editor-in-chief. It's Andrew Tuck with his weekend column.
1: In two weeks' time, restaurants and bars will reopen for indoor dining in England. Groups of up to 30 will be allowed outdoors. Foreign travel may even be permitted. But when the sun shines... London already feels buoyant, with alfresco spots outside cafes nabbed in seconds and parks packed. But one of the nicest hints of a return to better times has been olfactory. In the evenings you catch the smell of fragrance dabbed on wrists, of aftershave applied to chin. A city slowly sharpening up its act, heading out for date night. Less pleasant is my gym. After months of enforcing a strict booking regime of one person per lane for 30 minutes, they have now had an assessment and decided that you can have up to 23 people at one time in a very modestly sized pool. Cranky, you might as well bring a bottle of wine, crank up the music and call it a hot tub party. Meanwhile, they have become overly passionate about taping out the gym floor to ensure that nobody gets within two metres of each other. Yes, it's according to the assessment. In the health food shop near Monocle's offices, I cannot find a supplement that I take that's supposed to ensure your knees stay supple and happy even when you're pounding concrete on your nightly run. The manager sees me looking lost and explains that they have stopped putting it on display as it's one of a select list of products being targeted by a group of shoplifters. Well, the good news is that if the thieves also have dodgy knees, they should at least be very easy to catch. Or perhaps the thieves are controlled by a cabal of seniors with aching joints. What programmatic ads do you get served? I was talking to Tom, our managing editor, some time ago and was explaining how in Instagram I'm often targeted by ads that seem to know my cultural tastes rather well. He scanned his account to see how this worked and was a little dismayed when the first thing that he discovered was a supermarket ad for fish fingers. Well, currently, I'm being hit by several different campaigns for underwear brands that promise to fix problems that I never knew I had. Steady, not that one. More along the lines of, can't find comfortable underwear? Fed up of seams in your knickers? Want to feel more relaxed in your Y-fronts? These are not issues I have ever fretted about, and I promise would not be inquiries located in my search history. But, judging by the number of designs I'm being lured to try, many of our brightest minds are currently engaged in these issues. Haircut after four months. You'll be pleased to know that I kept it long. But Jackson, my man with the scissors, tells me that half of his customers have made the same decision. A talisman for The Times, or a hint that we're not quite ready to go back to normal yet. Back to the pool. As a first step towards hot tubbery, they've decided to have at least two people in each lane. So now you have to eye up the other people getting in the pool to see who looks like a safe lane buddy. I avoid anyone who looks too keen. The high-speeders, who smash through the water, as though this were the Olympics and pretend that you do not exist, are not fun to be with. How about the young man who looks a bit sleepy? No, 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 he's the one whose swimming style involves more splashing and flailing than a supper table destined tuna being hauled out of the water onto a tiny fishing boat. No, I look for someone north of 80 with a jaunty swimming cap decorated with flowers. These are my people. Although, what's your valuables if it looks like any of them have bad joints? They could be the granny gangsters.
0: Thank you very much there to our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. And the world is opening up, Vincent, isn't it? I mean, it's it's quite exciting as we see various bits if of If you it. can get a
3: booking, it's <laughs> opening up. That's the, I had to book a lunch for the third weekend in May this week and I could barely find a table and when I did it wasn't at the time we needed so it shifted from a brunch to a lunch so yeah it is pretty hard at the moment
0: really really difficult but from the 17th of May we can meet indoors
3: yes we can yeah things like theatres cinemas can start to open up in in phases there are some restrictions but yeah that it is starting and then we're told allegedly by the final week of June all rules lifted
0: Mm. here in the UK Mm. But meanwhile, people are really—I'm um, going to use this word, although it annoys me deeply when Obsessed. used in this in this um, context. We've all been pivoting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to uh, we everybody's adapting, and pubs have done the same.
3: Yeah, they have. Yeah, pubs have had to get outside areas built. They've had to, you know, have the QR code system. They've had to take bookings. They, they've had to change things over. Um, and it is. I was at a, a pub last night in Greenwich and in Greenwich Market, and it was. It was just. It was the. It was just nu- so nice. I managed to get a walk-in, which I couldn't, couldn't believe. But it was just so nice when you go to pubs. At the moment, it's just so nice seeing people that you know haven't seen each other for a very long time, greeting each other, still awkwardly doing an elbow bump or whatever, and sitting down and just enjoying each other's company, not through a screen and you know having drinks. And it was it was it's very nice to people watch at the moment. I do like a people watch, but yeah. it is nice. But people at pubs tomorrow night will be watching something else.
0: Oh, bum bum. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That was such a good segue. Yeah. Right, uh, so tell us about that. This is a story now from from The Times, uh, and it's about a television programme which is gripping the nation.
3: Gripping the nation. Yeah, at the moment, I've got to say, so, you know, a lot of talk in, in the pandemic about how Netflix and streaming services of the future, terrestrial linear TV is dead. But this is the show that bucks that trend. Line of Duty on BBC One. So the final episode of the sixth series and potentially the final ever. Um, If you haven't caught the show, it is about a police force somewhere in the UK, a unit called AC12 that investigates the police and police corruption. And for the last six series, it's all been about the OCG, this organised crime gang that's infiltrated the police. And it is so interconnected and interwoven, it's brilliant. But it's touched on big issues around the UK in the past couple of years. It looks at child grooming and how that could have been covered up by the establishment and things like that. And they've had some really big guest stars. Andy Newton went in for a series. Thank you for my question for a series. (laughs) Keely Hawes went in for two series. They get really brilliant actors turning out the best forms. Lots of them go on and win awards for this. That's what she won. uh, Sunway Newton won a BAFTA for it. Um, And it's all coming to, we think, to a close tomorrow. And just to give you a scale, the UK is a nation of about 63 million people the viewing figures for last week's episode and consistently across the series have been over 12 million people, which in this day and age is is a big audience. That's one in, you know, six people in in the UK at least watching this show Um, and it's because it is really intricately plotted and people have got so into um, who it is because part of of the show is that there's a room with basically going back over the six years trying to interconnect uh, with, you know, strings and pictures who it is but the public have been getting involved as well. There's a picture in the Times today of someone who has created their own map to try and figure out who H is. This is the key mystery. Um, And people have been having, you know, there's a funny, uh, one of the characters on Gogglebox has been keeping a notebook for the last couple of years, and she's got all the terms written down. There's a lot of acronyms in this show, a lot of characters. But tomorrow night, pubs have decided they're going to get in on this, and they're doing, after the football screened, they're going to switch over across the nation to Line of Duty, was a special I think it's 90 minute long episode where finally after uh, you know six, uh, how many six seasons but eight years the identity of H uh, will be revealed who is the head of this crime unit and even you know the the main cast is a trio of three police officers even some of them are under suspicion it's being kept an incredibly closely guarded secret by uh, the BBC the cast they've done that thing I think where they filmed a few alternate endings uh, and they don't know which one will actually go out so but you know it's nice to see people rallying around Unified around one thing, but it'll be nice as well for people tomorrow to be in the public together and, and enjoy that.
0: Absolutely. So we know what you're doing this weekend. Yes. <laughs> Well, I am retreating back where I'm redecorating. I've just done my kitchen in sulking room pink. <laughs>
3: I saw that nice giraffe put the print as well. Yeah, <laughs> lovely. To yeah.
0: And today it's uh, doing the sitting room in um, picture wall red and green smoke. OK. Doesn't that sound fabulous? Is that Farron Ball? It is. OK.
3: <laughs> you know the key with that stuff is that you laser eye the colour and get it mixed in other paint because the Farron Ball paint is a nightmare to put on. So, just a little tip there from someone oh, who's had to decorate. You. Yeah, that's how you do it.
0: Well, so for more decorating tips, do tune in to Monocle on a Saturday <laughs> at the same time next week because that's all we have time for on today's programme. Very many thanks to Vincent McAvinny who's been sitting here with me. It's been such fun to finally so have somebody. A bit
3: giddy, think, show, yeah, <laughs> it's been just nice to be in the studio.
0: Exactly, and on the other side of the glass, of course, is Nora Hull and monitoring us, our producer uh, Marcus Hippie. I'm Jordina Godwin, and as I say this programme will return at the same time next week. Thanks for listening.